Hi, I'm Dr. Pam Peek, and welcome to episode 413 of Her, the podcast where you're going to hear the truth about her mind, her body, her life, and today, her athletic brain. If you have a body, you are an athlete. Somebody once said that, and I'm like, let's do that. I'm on it. This is going to be a fabulous episode. Before we begin, just know that it's made possible by our sponsors. It's Solaray Vitamins, and that's S-O-L-A-R-A-Y, because why? We as women try to get all of our fruits and vegetables and all the good stuff in on a daily basis, and it rarely ever happens. So... We want to be able to have that multivitamin at the very least to be able to help us out. So run on over to solarayvitamins.com, learn more about liposomal multivitamins for women. Okay, now the other thing is after this episode, please click on iTunes, rate and review the show because we're sitting around waiting to hear from you. We love your feedback. All right, it's time for her. Her. The podcast. The naked truth about women. Her mind. Her body. Her life. It's all about her. Allison, welcome aboard. Crying out loud. This is the Her Podcast, and we're so stoked to have you on board. So excited to be here, too. You know, I wish we could have this in person if I still lived in the national capital region, but this is equally as perfect. All right. Well, this is going to have to be the tech version of hanging out. Everyone, we are so happy to have Major Allison Joy Brager, PhD, on with us to talk about the athletic brain. She wrote a book, which I just love. It's called Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain. Now, Major Brager is a neurobiologist with the expertise in sleep and circadian rhythms for the United States Army. Thank you for your service, by the way. She works on human and animal models of study. This work examines substrates and mechanisms of resiliency to extreme environmental stress. And that means exercise. She probably just saw me on my elliptical. Exercise, (laughs) extreme stress, jet lag, and sleep deprivation. This is just so cool because you were supposed to be giving a talk to the American College of Sports Medicine, where I really saw this up. You were talking about human performance for all intent and purposes. I'm on their board, and I immediately, my little eyes went, what? Okay, I'm all about that because I am a senior Olympic triathlete, and I like to, you know, lifelong physical activity, the whole gig. And I couldn't wait to hear. And so I decided I'm just going to kidnap you, put you on the podcast, and we can really do some hanging out instead of you yapping away on a stage somewhere. All right, let's sort of dig into this. Why did you write this book in the first place? Tell us a little bit about you. You look like you're in fantastic physical shape. You obviously, being in the Army, you had to have passed all the testing and, and back and forth for physical performance, but why did you write it? Oh, I'm so happy you asked that question because nobody ever asked that question. I sort of have to put it out there as I'm describing content. Wrote the book because. (laughs) Yeah. Back when I was in academia, before I 
fled from academia and started doing military research at Walter Reed. I always felt like an exile because I was the only person where I worked at a medical school who valued athletics almost as much as my academics. I've been fortunate enough to compete as a professional athlete in CrossFit at one point in my life. So I've always been that person who's been training three or four hours a day. You know, I had that schedule in college too, but my colleagues were super judgy about it. They didn't understand that I had this altered ego and life as an athlete. And they were always looking for ways to criticize my academic work, but they never could because I always had funding. I always had NIH funding. I was publishing in the top journals. I was doing everything you expect as a scientist And then as a teacher, because I used to teach the neuroscience course at Morehouse College across the street. I was at Morehouse School of Medicine. That's where I did my postdoc and where I stayed on as faculty. I kept that in the back of my mind, right? But then it was this time in my life where I look at peer groups in college. And, you know, about 10 years after college, that's when you start seeing who actually took their college degree, went on and started to make impact on the world. And then you see those people who just do nothing or just, I don't know, take a job that doesn't really have anything to do with their college education. I say all that because, so I was fortunate. I went to an Ivy League for undergrad, but I was an athlete. And people don't know this unless you're actually an athlete at one of the Ivies. There's a huge stigma against the athletes there that we're not deserving there, that we're not supposed to ever get in because at one point in time, they did lower the academic standards for athletes because they're D1 schools. They can't compete at the highest level of sport. And so it's really hard to find kids from high school who are the top scholars in the country, but also the top athletes in the country. So they made exceptions for us, right? And so that stigma really carried on throughout college. Like you can ask any non-athlete, they would call us dumb jocks, meathead, obviously, like we were just there because we were good at sports. But 10 years after college, if I look at my teammates or athletes that I hung out with in college, because we basically all stuck together because the rest of the student body didn't really appreciate us. We're all doctors, lawyers, politicians, thought figures in society. And those who weren't athletes, not to say they're not doing well, but I feel like we have done better professionally too. So that was more or less my thesis for writing the book. It's like this immediate experience I had again at Morehouse School of Medicine, and then this experience I had in college. And I was like, you know what? There has to be some science against this. It's not just me. There's other people who've been very successful since playing sports. And sure enough, like in the time when I wrote the book in 2013, the field was in its infancy. There wasn't a whole lot on the neuroplasticity of exercise and the brain and growth of actual brain areas. But there is science to support that athletics or just exercise, just a moderate amount of exercise leads to growth and brain areas and helps to preserve nerve cells and brain health and existing areas. Exercise is a beautiful thing. So coming through medical school and all of my training, physical activity was like a blow off. It's like, well, yeah, you know, get up and take a little walk with a dog or, you know, and it was never taken seriously. We never had a course. 
We never had any kind of formal training. I was lucky because I was a tomboy since probably when I was a blastomere. I'm in utero and I'm already like, you know, spiking the ball in volleyball in there. And to me, it was insane that they didn't, all these teachers, all this education I had, years and years of education, no one took it seriously. And meanwhile, I was seeing the emerging, just like you, seeing the emerging science, evidence-based science, associating more physical activity with greater brain development, with greater cognitive performance. And I could go on, we'll get into that because that's your job. But it made no sense. Medical science per se has been so far behind the eight ball. And quite frankly, it's still not on the boards, the physical activity nutrition, other than some blow off vanilla kind of questions that are kind of insulting, quite frankly, they're so simplistic. So The good news is we now have new generations coming through, certainly like you, who are cognizant of this science, are now associating it and trying to put together a real foundation of knowledge so that we now respect physical activity. We respect nutrition, for instance, you know, healthy living and the rest of it. So it's not just sort of a placating blow-off. It is real science all the way through, which is why I just loved this because you were looking at that athletic brain, what goes on. It's so interesting. If you look at all the podcasts now by all the, you know, kind of like the SEAL bros, you know, they have Navy SEALs out there doing the Ojaco and Goggins and the rest of them. And what they're doing is they're just putting all that stuff together in a way that is more palatable to a consumer audience. Because, you know, I mean, you know better than anybody, the science can get pretty hairy. So I just love this. Let's take a peek into the athletic brain. In other words, what the hell is this? This is the most important thing for me, always drawing back to this. How does having more physical activity in your life, I don't mean like volumes, I'm talking about just upping it here and making it routinized in your life, like a daily ritual, a daily practice, how does that actually help you in all of these other things you do in your life? Because you mentioned doctor, lawyer, you know, all the rest of it. And, And let's put that together so that people then can connect dots and say, well, here's more meaning and purpose behind slapping on my sneakers and getting the hell out and doing something with my body. My grandmother used to say motion is lotion. She was born during a time when DNA wasn't even discovered yet. But blood flow, right? Like blood carries so much nutrients and so much of vitality that when you move, you're circulating blood and you're putting nutrients to all sorts of areas of the body, the brain included, the blood-brain barrier. There's going to be increased circulation there too carrying around these factors that are regenerative and health promoting without getting into the specifics. Mentally too, right? There's the whole body, brain, mind axis and that blood flow is going to increase and prime the brain to pay attention to things out in the world, to stimulate brain areas and thoughts and emotional centers of the brain that 
probably otherwise wouldn't be tapped into without motion. And then the sense of community, like, sure, some of us do choose to exercise alone, but so much of exercise is built around community. You know, I used to think back to, and I'll probably be one of those people, the mall walkers. I used to think about growing up, my father was a janitor at our local mall. So like, sometimes I would go with him to work in the morning before it's time to be dropped off for school. I see all the old guys and women out there just getting their miles in. But then, you know, that sense of community, too, because that's what we are. We're a social species, but that's what exercise does. And, you know, like I tell people, nobody brings together humans and the American public like sports. At the end of the day, when you go to an NFL game, doesn't matter who's voting Republican or Democrat, who's gay, straight, what religion you believe in. Like we all put our differences aside around sports. I saw that a few weeks ago. I came back from Australia. I went to the Australian Open and it was so cool to have pretty much the world gather and just be in the same place at the same time. They're supporting their country and their country star players without any conflict. And nothing does that like sports. I love that. And so with physical activity then, it's kind of the grand neutralizer. It brings everybody together. Let's talk about how having a more athletic brain allows you to do better in life. Sure. I break it down in the book into three sections. So the first section just focuses on brain health. Now, granted, I wrote this book 10 years ago when this field was in its infancy, but this is foundational knowledge about brain science that's just been repeated and replicated now through greater populations and greater sample sizes. So that's the first section is exercise brain health. The second section focuses on athletes and what are the physical and psychological attributes of an athlete that are primed and enhanced through training. And then this last chapter focuses on the difference between an amateur athlete and how that amateur athlete goes to become an elite athlete. And what are some of the trait-like differences in a brain of an elite athlete versus an amateur? So that's more along the lines of like neuroplasticity. If we're just talking about exercise and brain health, I think the best way to describe it without getting too technical is there's one brain factor in general that is propagated through exercise more than anything else. And that's brain-derived neurotrophic factor, BDNF. So neurotrophic, meaning nerve cell growth, that's what it does, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. It increases with exercise. And it increases with even moderate to mild amounts of exercise. So just spending 45 minutes a day walking the dog is sufficient to augment brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And what that factor is doing, and as you know very well, is it is promoting growth of new brain area, of connections between brain areas, but it's also preserving and protecting the brain health of existing nerve cells and pathways, which becomes more important as we age because we lose that neuroprotective factor as we age. But if we have BDNF there in high amounts or in sufficient amounts, then we're protecting us against possible neurodegeneration and other mental health issues such as Parkinson's, depression, anxiety, and all those things that are directly linked to brain-derived neurotrophic factor and the amount of it. So how does this translate into being a better professional at whatever you do? 
Honestly, Malcolm Gladwell's rule, right? The 10,000 hour rule. I think in the book, I quote Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee says, I'd rather trust the man who's practiced one kick 10,000 times than a man who's practiced 10,000 kicks once. It's all about experience and training those motor pathways because at the end of the day, like performing highly technical movements, either as a professional athlete or out in the real world and what you do, shouldn't require forethought, right? If this podcast is about sleep, like I literally could wake up five minutes before I would give this podcast at 2 a.m., which I actually have done before when I've had briefs to give over in Europe because I've done it enough now that I have that experience and I have that practice that those pathways in the brain have been primed and trained and can work more efficiently through practice. And that's really what separates an elite athlete from an amateur is an elite athlete is a race car in the idle position. And when they go, they go. And an amateur, they have to think about these things as they're doing them. And that's why they're slower to respond. And they don't have the fluid movement patterns that you see in a professional athlete. And the difference also, you said, between an amateur and an elite are the numbers of hours of practice so that it literally becomes a piece of you so that there's almost no thinking involved. It just, you do it. And to a point where you actually make it look easy. Yes, absolutely. And then when the professional athlete does think about it, what happens? They choke. That's the neurobiology of choking is when you let that conscious thought of your movement patterns enter your consciousness because you've trained those pathways so much, there should be no thinking involved. So ideally, what we could tell the Her podcast audience is that every single day, the way I look at it, is you have a physical activity-centric day. And instead of it being kind of like a sidebar, blow-off, you make it centric. And you ask yourself, how's today look? Let's check the weather. Let's look at the schedule. Let's see what kind of resources I have around me to be able to become physically active. It could be just resistance training, even if you just have some bands or rubber tubing or, you know, maybe some free weights hanging around or a nice, what I love, kettlebell. What kind of resources did you plan on having around you? Can you escape? Is there a gym around? Et cetera, et cetera. But going outdoors, walk your dog, even if you don't have one, get on out there enjoy nature. That nice brisk walk can be so healing and healthy for mind and body. And then you can't tell me that after having incorporated that into your day, that you're not going to do better professionally at whatever you're doing, because you've got that extra energy mentally, physically, you're more focused, you can concentrate, you can be mindful of what's going on. And we already have countless studies that have basically proven this to be true. And this is true of children, which makes me crazy when they take recess away from them. Schools are taking away physical activity per se. They don't even have that much after school anymore where, you know, when you and I were kind of coming through the system, as it were, I mean, you know, you couldn't keep us out of trees and throwing balls and having fun on just crazy little ad hoc teams of dodgeball and whatever, how healthy that was and how much better we did with our homework and our overall performance. 
And that's just not happening today. There's like a really bad disconnect, number one, with how important it is. But number two, it's still being blown off. Oh, that's just if you have some extra time kind of a thing. So if you were queen of the world, what would you do to fix this up? So you don't know this, but my last army assignment was with the recruiting command. I spent three years as a professional athlete in CrossFit competing for the army in CrossFit around the world in the country. And basically before and after these competitions, we would go into high schools and have conversations with kids about joining the army. It took so much in my power not to lose my mind with every high school we went into because there's no structure. Literally the kids, because of the lack of discipline and like the parental influence are allowed to do what they want. So you might have some kids doing like organized basketball over here, but most of the kids are in the corner on their phone or they're like sort of lackadaisically playing around with the jump rope. The gym teacher is not present. And sometimes I saw like gym teachers on their phone. There's no like respect or authority. And I'm like, this is why the military has a recruiting problem, right? Because there's so many kids who drop out right away when they go to basic training or they get injured. The biggest form of injury in basic training is a stress fracture. Do you know why? Because they don't put the stress on their joints as a kid. I consider physical readiness to be the number one threat to national security. If I was queen or president for the day, that would be my platform, is that physical readiness is the number one threat to national security. Like, do you remember during, I think it was Bush, Clinton, Reagan administration, they had the president's physical fitness test. And we used to have to- I did it. Yeah, I did it too. I remember that was like, whatever, I was in elementary school, but I would always train to try to get the gold badge every year, like everyone else. Like, we need to bring back those programs. We got to bring back the presidential fitness tests and things like that. And I don't think it's a surprise now why so many kids have issues with mental health. Like, I don't even blame technology. I blame the lack of physical education and recess in schools. That's what it is. It's not the technology. Sorry, I got all fired up. No, about no, it. no. You know, stand right on your soapbox, man. Let's let it rip. Because I feel precisely the same way. It's the weirdest thing. I saw a piece of news coming across my feed. And it was a video. And it was a young woman who appears to be in her 20s. She's taken really good care of herself. So she's in an apartment complex gym. It's on the feeds right now. She's working away by herself. Now, it's an apartment complex gym, so you have to have a key to get in and you know how it goes. And she's all, all alone, working out, working hard. And then some guy came to the door, and she recognized him. He's come to the gym a few other times. So it was someone she recognized, not some total stranger. She didn't know him, but whatever. So she, you know, as a courtesy, she got off, you know, her machine, ran over, opened the door, and then she came back to her machine to work out. Lo and behold, you know what happened. You know, he was in there alone with her, the door was locked, and he attacked her. And here's the thing that... <laughs> was just amazing. I mean, she beat the living hell out of him, was able to fight him off. The whole thing, like a moron he is, the whole thing's on camera. Of course, they arrested him, and, and he's a, go figure, a resident of that apartment complex. He's in jail, all the rest of it. But I watched a young woman 
be able to defend herself. And that takes a foundational program of physical strength, fast thinking. So there's cognition in there too. I say to myself, how many young men and women are in that kind of shape where they can literally save their own life if they had to? And I look at the military now, you know, I'm close to Walter Reed and all the rest of it. And I constantly hear about, you know, the difficulty recruiting because people are in terrible shape. They're obese. Oh, God. You have no idea in high school. I don't want to be insensitive, but it is bad. We are in an obesity epidemic. It doesn't matter where you go. When we do our recruiting events, We'll go to rural areas, we'll go to urban areas, we'll go to wealthy communities, we go to poor communities. We go to the whole spectrum of socioeconomic status. There is an obesity epidemic everywhere. And it's because there's little physical education and recess. And who's mentoring these kids? It's parents. If you're going to be a parent, you took on the responsibility to mentor your children into their optimal health and well-being, mentally and physically, that means that you have to carry weight and accountability and role model for them. And if, you know, you eat trash all day long and you offer your kids trash, well, hello, at the same time. And clearly, we're being quite general about this. There are so many factors involved. I mean, there's economics involved and all the rest of it. And access to appropriate physical activity, access to appropriate food, we should be spending and prioritizing time on that so that by the time you show up to recruit, we've got kids who've been eating much better, who are more physically fit and can be recruited. People don't think about our armed services Who's defending our country for crying out loud? It's men and women who have the mind and body to be able to do that. And this is a huge priority for any country on this globe. And we're not making any sense of this by tossing all of this out and deprioritizing it. Absolutely. It's not a surprise. We're in a recruiting problem right now. I think it's going to increase for the next 15 to 20 years because it begins at the level of elementary school education. I mean, I will tell you like the gym classes we've gone to, part of how you learn to be a growing, functional, stable adult in society, ball sports, right? Like everyone remembers those elementary school games of when you had to pretend like you were the octopus and you would grab arms and like the octopus arm would increase in size and length and then you tag more kids. They don't do games like that anymore because it's too aggressive and definitely don't do field flag football. Like that was always the big thing, right? When we'd have to flag football games like four square, they don't do it because kids can't deal with losing. You know, they have to create gym class activities now. I kid you not that are not based on merit. They're based on equal opportunity because you can't have winners and you can't have losers. And I'm like, wow, this is setting up our society for a great future. Gosh, we're really going down this rabbit hole in a big way. But there are books now written about the fact that we're coddled and that we're too comfortable. I always say to myself, if you were thrown on a desert island, who's going to survive? And you have to ask yourself, as a physician and a scientist, 
I know that, and, and you know this as a neurobiologist, the number one prerogative of any living organism is one thing, survival. Yeah, survival of the fittest. And so that young woman who was fending off someone who could easily have killed her, that was survival, and that was what we call fight and flight, baby. And she was fighting, not flighting. And she did an outstanding job because she was prepared to do that. She was prepared. What scares me are the number of people who are not. You know what's really interesting? There are so many interesting statistics out there. You know, when we had, God forbid, 9-11, a number of my colleagues had studied what had happened as people were in the towers, and this wasn't the Pentagon part, but in the towers, and you know they were taking the stairs down. Okay, y'all take stairs down from the 80th floor? Think about that for a minute, okay? And how many people never made it because they were in such terrible shape? They literally couldn't run for their own life. And this just totally broke my heart. But there are times in life, and certainly today with all the craziness going on, where you may have to run for your life, you may have to fight for your life, but nobody really thinks about that. And do you have the mind and body to be able to survive? Whether you're a military recruit or not, whether you're just someone who, like that young lady in the gym, was minding her own business but had to fight for her life, or whatever you do in life, do you have the mind and body to survive? Or have we become so soft, so easily triggered by whatever in our environment that we are now eroding our ability to survive optimally? So you're a neurobiologist and an athlete. I'm an athlete and a clinical scientist. And we're both coming to the same place, which is optimal survival occurs when you integrate into your life mind and body fitness. And that is absolutely critical. And we need to be able to build an infrastructure in this country to be able to support that goal, starting from kindergarten all the way through college and really creating an environment that welcomes and respects physical activity and mind and body wellness, period, end of story. Okay, and with that lovely thought, no. No, we're on the same page. It doesn't have to be expensive. It can be super simple. Like I think back to all the first ladies and the different social campaigns they have. Michelle Obama, I think, has had one of the best ones. Like she basically taught elementary school and middle schoolers how to grow a garden. Something, you know, we all did when we were kids and then somehow got lost in the sauce in those years. It's just, it's not that difficult no matter where you live in America to grow a garden with local fruits and vegetables. And that's so important. And then also just to do something simple like play. Why can't we just play? Why does everything have to be, you need some structure? Clearly, no question. Please bring back the president's challenge to every single school. 
Let's prepare kids because it also helps build stamina mentally and physically, and it gives you a sense of achievement. I never ran the 660 to win a damn thing. What I did was I just, you know, knew I had to do it to be able to get through school. It was like, you know, check that box. Yeah, is it check, is it check the block in order to graduate? I can't graduate without it, and even if I was the last person in, who cares? Nobody cares so long as you check the box, she tried hard, whatever, back and forth. So to your point, it's not about winning and losing. It's about just being able to do it in a way that's meaningful, and that helps you in the end. So I just love this. Why can't we be the queens of the world and make all these changes right now? Crying out loud. Well, you have a lot of listeners and followers. Yeah, well, you know, I'm also on the board of the American College of Sports Medicine, and so we're kicking ass over there, too, because we write the policy that so many people follow, and it's our guidance and our research that helps everyone. And so hopefully we'll be able to hear your keynote sometime in the future when Uncle Sam doesn't get in the way. But where can people find your book, Meathead, Unraveling the Athletic Brain? So mostly Amazon. You can also buy it through Barnes & Noble too, but online. It's in soft cover, hard cover, and I'm working now when I have time on producing an audio recording. It came out about 10 years ago, so audiobooks weren't a thing really back then. But now I, I recognize that a lot of people listen to audiobooks more so than digital print. Well, I'm just going to say on behalf of the Her Podcast, I'm so loving your energy and where you're going and your passion for all of this. So please keep that going because we need more voices out there like you. And, you know, please keep teaching this mind and body fitness. Major Allison Joy Bragger, thanks so much for being on the Herb Podcast. Absolutely. It's really an honor and a pleasure to finally virtually see you and connect with you. But again, I know it won't be a last time. It's small world. Coffee's on me, man, when you come into town. Now, everyone out there, please take a minute to hit iTunes, rate and review the show because my team and I are waiting to hear from you. And a huge shout out once again to our sponsor, Solaray Vitamins. Please run on over to solaray.com. Learn more about the liposomal multivitamins just for women. Listen, I'm Dr. Pam Peak, host of the Herb Podcast. Follow me on Facebook at Dr. Pam Peak or Twitter and Instagram at Pam Peak MD. Remember to catch every single episode of the Herb Podcast on iTunes, Radio MD, Spotify, all the platforms out there. We're everywhere trying to get that message out there. And listen, thanks for being here, joining us. Stay safe and stay well.